Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Gwen. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm really interested in what you're going to talk about today because it does take a different twist on co coaching. Um, I was going to say consulting, but it, it's really kind of both. Um, and and it's a it's a topic known as death doula. And I think it's a great way to talk about how a coach can be utilized by individuals or family members or, or friends of a, a family member who are going through a major transition. And, and this certainly is a major transition being death. And it's something that each and every one of us go through. Um, and yet most people, I've, I've never used a death doula for any of my family members who are going through that, that transition to death, uh, well, so please, please tell us what you've learned, what got you interested, just really curious. Yeah. So, um, I guess we'll start with what got me interested. Um, I've always had a, uh, pretty factual um, relationship with death, um, in the sense that I'm not afraid of it. Um, my father died when I was very young. Um, he died by suicide and the, it, since I was 12, I've kind of always thought, oh, death happens. And sometimes it's by choice, um, tragically. Um, and my grandmother on my stepfather's side died in our home from cancer, uh, when I was, Oh gosh, it might've been, it might've been six months before. It might've been six months after, um, she came to live with us and my mother took care of her. Um, she was on hospice for about six months. Um, and then, uh, in 2017, my mother passed away of lung cancer. Um, and she died in my house and I took care of her. Um, and I didn't know that there was such a thing as a death doula, um, until I started getting into coaching and thinking about the one thing that um, we all are going to do, every single one of us, there's a lot of choices that you make throughout life, um, but the one choice that we don't get to make um, is to die, but we get to make choices about how we die. Um, and I, my, my frankness with death has extended to like the conversations that I have with my stepkids before they went off to college. Uh, we talked about, uh, living wills and, um, DNRs and what they wanted. Um, I gave them that option to fill out the paperwork with me and, and have that available, um, their triplets and only one of them decided to, to take me up on that offer. Cause the other two were like, heck no, I'm not going to talk about that. That's why That's weird. <laughs> I'm 18. I don't need that. Um, but my stepson was very much like, well, yeah, let's go through it. Like, let's, <laughs> let's talk about it. Um, and the, this, this idea of dying well, knowing if you have a terminal disease or not, Dying well encompasses um, thoughtfulness around how you die. Um, what do you want if you if something tragic happens? What do you want medical intervention to look like? If some if you've got a terminal disease and you find that out, what does that look like? Um, 
And I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for a minute and see you know what your thoughts and reactions are to to that. What I've just said. As a person in the healthcare profession, I can tell you that bedside healthcare professionals, physicians, also even if in an office, would love for everyone to have a living will, um, have anything in writing to have understanding among the family of what that person's will or desire would be. I'm not clinical, but I have been administrator on call before, and I've been called to the ICU before, and I've walked in in the middle of family debates and sometimes arguments with that person who's just been given a few days yet to live or a person who can go to surgery, but it could be very risky. Um, and that person recognizing they don't have a will. And that is not the moment for people to start to argue about what they might want for that person. That's not the point for the individual to be thinking about, do they want to be on life support? Do they want feedings? Do they, they want, um, just, you know, water, um, post do, or, or, you know, how might anything be distributed among the family members if, if death is the ultimate outcome. So professionally, this is huge and so important. Personally, I, you know, I too had a mom die by suicide, but it was much later in life, not until I was about 35 years old. Um, so I have a similar perspective about death, but more importantly, I, I was able to sit with my grandfather as he was passing. Now I made the mistake again of being a healthcare professional of not insisting, but feeling like it would be much better for him to be in the ICU in the hospital, um, rather than sending him back to the farm to die, which was his request. The reasons for that are number one, no one had the guts to tell us he was going to die. They kept up hope that if, if he could just, you know, heal a bit in bed, then he could go to surgery and then, and then, and then knowing that if he did go home, none of that would be likely an opportunity. And I have an aunt that's a nurse too. So we, we had that medical model in our minds and, you know, knowing what's best. And, and he did end up after five, six days passing away. I was able to be in the hospital with him almost the whole time. I did get to participate um, and see the end of life. I saw lots of awesome stuff that he was able to see <clears throat> at the end as he was looking up to the ceiling and talking about this. Oh my gosh, I've never been here before. I can't wait to join you and talking to people that have gone before. So, wow, what an experience for me. But then the guilt of... It could have been so much better for him if we'd let him go back to the farm and have that experience in his own bed, in his own home, on his own land. So for you as a death doula to be able to bring all that together is incredible. Yeah. the it, It's lovely that you mentioned being able to see what someone goes through because often in a hospital setting, we might not because of visiting hours and whatnot. Um, my mother was very quiet um, 
she was probably shy, but definitely an introvert. Um, so she didn't speak aloud as she was um, as she was uh, transitioning. Um, but what I wished had gone differently, and I think ultimately why I I went on this journey, is we kept um, applying procedures. So she went into the emergency room because she um, she had fluid in her lungs. She had COPD and lung cancer. She had fluid in her lungs and she was having a hard time breathing. Well, while she was in the emergency room, they took her for a CT scan and um, came back and they were like, there's um, METs on her uh, cervical spine, um, down in like a couple of her ribs, um, a couple of other places but the the uh cancer had it was enveloping her her spine up here and they were concerned that um it would eat through the bone and collapse it um it would um make it hard for her to walk um in the meantime and she had like the the fluid in lungs was what brought us to um, the emergency room. Um, she wasn't having any sort of symptoms with this other stuff. And they recommended that she do radiation for her, um, for, for the, the, um, the cancer in her, in her spine. And so we went and did that. Um, we did not have palliative care at that point in time. Nothing was mentioned to us about palliative care. She had a stage four lung cancer diagnosis and the, the, the prognosis tables tell you, you know, 75% of people die within five years, but it's really hard to kind of narrow that down to, to what, what is this person? And, and it's impossible to really say, but um, it wasn't that impossible. So the pressure for treatment versus the quality of life of the individual. So she went through um, the radiation what it caused was fraying of the the throat and and vocal cords, as as often happens with um, with uh, radiation in that part of the brain or that part of the the, the um, spine, and so she couldn't eat or drink from you know she had about a week of radiation or two weeks worth of radiation, and then the next two weeks um, she, her quality of of being able to eat and drink just went down. Um, until eventually she uh, she couldn't eat or drink anything um, and she started to pass. Um, we didn't use hospice soon enough. Um, we waited until, gosh, I think she was on it for six days um, before we could make her comfortable. And she was resistant. She didn't want to go on hospice. Um, but I say all of that to say, like, with a death doula there, that person is an advocate for the dying person. They are first and foremost there for the dying person and, and then secondarily for the family. Um, and the ability to have someone who does not have an agenda with this person only wants what they, they need, right? Well, only wants what they want and only can advocate for them um, and can lay out options in a very, um, just no agenda way. Um, and to be able to say, hey, you can use palliative care early on. Hey, um, what kind of quality of life do you want for the last, for the next, you know, 
whatever, year, two years of your life, six months of your life, week of your life. What do you want to talk about? Reflect on about your life. Mm -hmm. What kind of legacy have you left? What do you want your family to do after you're gone? What kind of vigil would you like? What kind of ceremony do you like? Um, all of that stuff in a way that is incredibly, you know, it's on the dying person's timeline. No conversations are forced, but it's also in talking about those things that we often don't get around with because we're too busy trying to ignore the fact that the person is dying. <laughs> right. Um, and then once the person has passed, giving the family the option of not assuming what should happen. You can have the body stay with you for a couple of hours for a day if you want to. Um, I thought I had to have my mom leave right away. So at like 2.30 in the morning when she passed, I called hospice up. They came, they got all the drugs, called the funeral home. They came and picked up my mom's body. Um, but I didn't have to do that so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know that. And so just having someone who's there, who's comfortable with death, who's familiar with it, and who can kind of normalize this experience that, as most Americans, we just shy away from. Yeah. It happens away from us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't usually like to talk about it or admit that we're vulnerable and might die someday. <laughs> uh, don't talk, I, talk about it. it might happen wait a minute it's gonna happen <laughs> oh and I love that you brought up palliative care and hospice because again I'll circle back to the healthcare profession I'm in it and my grandpa was in a hospital and yet when social work came and care management came we asked all the questions if he did want to go home would home health be able to follow up you know what about anything else. Now, again, they did not allude to the fact that he would likely pass, but still, I wish they would have mentioned hospice. I wish they would have mentioned palliative care. I should have asked the questions, but I, you know, I was a granddaughter, not the, not the child either, or the adult child. Um, but I think there's stigma around hospice and palliative care, just those terms. And most people don't realize you can be in a palliative care program or in a hospice program for a long time, for years, and there can be in, intermittent caring to ensure yeah. that you have what you need when you need it, um, that if nothing else, pain control or options to help you get your home ready with the bars and all the pieces and components you may need, it can be at your home. It doesn't have to, you don't have to go to hospice um, and, and change where you are in, in any way. So all great things to know, but if you get in a healthcare system, they're only likely to tell you about the pieces and parts that they offer. So a death doula as an objective person in that community can certainly help the individual or the family know, well, even though that health system may not offer this for you, let's check with another or let's check with an outside resource to, to really meet their needs. Yeah. I was so surprised at like the difference that hospice made 
um, we were trying to chase her pain level or her pain with a bunch of different pills. And again, she couldn't swallow and she was having excruciating pain and swallowing. It wasn't until hospice came that we got um, mouth administered morphine and we got um, fentanyl patches. Mm -hmm. um, and once that was there, it increased her quality of life tenfold. And just the not being in so much pain. Um, so I think we assume doctors are are going to tell it to us straight, right? This is what's happening and here's, but but they don't. And and part of it is because that's their job is to care for the person. Mm -hmm. Their job is to heal. And they that is their motivation, especially with cancer. Um, oncologists want to treat cancer, they want to cure cancer. And, and they want to make sure the patient and everyone has some hope. Yeah. And they're afraid if they start talking about death and dying, everyone's going to give up hope. And, and they don't know. I mean, you said one to five years that that is, you know, stage four, generally what is stated and they don't know. And some people last well past the five years. Yep. And, but we could have looked at my mother and been like, that is not the situation for her. Yeah. I looked at the tables and said, oh, my mom's special and different. I bought her a puppy. Oh. She's going to beat this lung, this stage four lung cancer. Um, I was optimistic. <laughs> you were hopeful and you wanted to offer hope to her. Yes. Um, the, which at some point, at one point in time, she's like, maybe not a puppy, but I was like, this one's here now. So, like, so this is what we got, um, but they're just the, the idea of having someone kind of navigate through as a, as a, again, a stable force of options. Cause we don't know. Mm -mm. But someone whose expertise is in that field can tell you, well, there's this hospice, there's this hospice, there's this, this caregiving function, there's this caregiving function, there's this palliative option. Um, they're not medical professionals. I'm certainly not a medical professional, but I know of what's available in my local area that can be helpful and brought in. Because the last thing they want to do is do a bunch of research on which hospice is the best hospice and where, you know, no one ain't, no one got time for that. You got a time to, to help your loved one and spend time with them and, and figure out navigation of all of that. And then there's the feelings aspect. So how do we feel about it? How do we die well? How do we, you know, get over the fact that our, or, or digest the fact that our person is not taking treatment anymore? And what does that mean? And then how do you ease someone into their last days, their last hours, their last moments? It's amazing. There are birth doulas and now death doulas. So if though, if there are people who aren't familiar with that term, what is the definition of doula? Doula, I, I don't know the, like the clinical definition or the, the like Webster's dictionary version, but it's really someone who's there to help and guide and serve um, to ease that experience. Um, and I think it's it's interesting that the, the word is now used with you know birth for a long time. Um, I think most people are familiar with midwives or, or birth doulas. Um, and then that bookend of, of the death um, mm -hmm. aspect. 
Um, I call myself an end of life coach because a lot of the conversations that um, that I have very much look like coaching in the sense of being that active listener to help the person digest their feelings um, and then offering up support and resources when the person asks for them or, or inquires about them. And so. I expect you're writing down their goals and clarifying those goals. So another component, you've described it already, the after support. For that family then who is left behind not to have to guess at the goals, guess at the legacy, guess at the ceremony or ritual, write the obituary, figure out all the funeral home logistics, not to have that burden. Wow. Yep. You can do all of that stuff before you go. Um, and I'm practiced in having those conversations. I apparently was the only one that talked to my stepdad who died of leukemia about six months before my mother died of lung cancer. Um, just randomly one day I was like, so what are you thinking? Like when you go, what, what does that look like for you? What, what would you like to have? And quietly took my, my, <laughs> my cell phone and wrote in my notes and, um, when he passed, I think it was December 23rd, and I was um, I went to Tucson to help my mom, um, and I was there with um, Jim's son, Jim Jr., and my mom, and and the funeral home person was like, okay, well, what are you what are you guys thinking? And I looked at Jim Jr. and I was like, well, what what do you? And he's like, well, I don't know what my dad wanted. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have some notes because we had this conversation. Well, I do. So be able to be like, oh. I wrote some stuff down. It made it so much easier. Oh, he wants a bagpiper. Oh, he wants this song. Oh, it's important for him to have this. Oh, this is this is the 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 church we're going to use. Um, made it so much easier on my mom and Jim Jr., um, who were really the mourners here because I hadn't known Jim that well or for that long, um, to really support them in their mourning. Mm -hmm. So really good invaluable soul work <laughs> so end of life coach we'll we'll go with that we'll we'll just really reflect on all the dimensions of coaching and and the value that it can bring yeah absolutely thank you so much for the conversation Gwen. yeah thank you kate it's been powerful <laughs>